I think perhaps as I look back at those who shaped my own life, and there are a great deal of similarities between the game of football and the game of politics, that I learned a great deal from a football coach who not only taught his players how to win, but who also taught them that when you lose, you don't quit. That when you lose, you fight harder the next time. You're listening to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Freudis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. That was President Nixon speaking at the Professional Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio on July 30th, 1971. We are now about to begin the football season in 2019, and on an earlier podcast we talked about Nixon's love for baseball, what they call America's pastime. On this edition, we'll talk about Nixon's love for America's passion, football. We're back with Nicholas Evan Sarantakis, professor of history at U.S. Naval War College and author of a new book due out this October called Fan and Chief, Richard Nixon in American Sports, 1969 to 1974. Nick, welcome back. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back. Just to start off, Nick, uh, Nixon's first exposure to football came at a young age when he was in high school and in college at Whittier. Can you describe his experience with football at this time? Yeah, he was a walking, talking, breathing uh, tackle dummy. Uh, Nixon was not particularly uh, graceful um, physically and athletically. Uh, You can see that in pictures and videos of him. You can even see that on the golf course. Uh, For whatever reason, that just wasn't his strength. And I don't think it's you. I don't think you're a Nixon hater to to make that statement. But and he was not. Uh, he was also didn't have the frame, the build, uh, the weight to be, to be really all that outstanding on the football field. But he loved the sport, and he was a real asset to his team because he believed that, and he did add something to the team. He was, you know, it's kind of like he was a Rudy before Rudy. Uh, he was out there. He was enthusiastic. He enjoyed the sport. He enjoyed playing, and he got a lot out of it. That quote from about his coach uh, says, you know, and one or two sentences, a lot about uh, Nixon's personality, his character. And um, it's also probably what keeps you going in a profession where you do take a lot of hits. So he loved the sport. Um, Obviously, a lot of people love the sport uh, who are not politicians. uh, But, you know, it's an exciting game, uh, running and throwing and all this sort of stuff. So he enjoyed it. He enjoyed playing it. He's not the kind of guy who you would ever think was going to go far in the sport, either at the college level or in pros. But um, that was his early exposure. He talks here in this Hall of Fame speech about uh, the coach that he admired. And the coach that he admired was his coach um, at Whittier College, uh, Coach Wallace Newman. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you, could, who was Coach Newman and, and why did Nixon admire him so much? Uh, Newman was, if memory serves me correctly, uh, a USC uh, player uh, in his own uh, um, college experience. And uh, I guess the the long and short of it is he spoke to Nixon in a way that others had not uh, about the importance of will, uh, the importance of focus and determination. I think part of it had to do with the classroom in, in which uh, uh, Wallace Newman was teaching, which is to say the athletic field. And it was just 
you know, he taught some really simple lessons that uh, really uh, Nixon adhered to. And, you know, it, it got to Nixon in a way that uh, other people did not. It was also something Nixon referred to a lot. And there were other positive influences or uh, influential individuals in Nixon's life, his mother, his father. Uh, that's pretty clear if you read any biography of Nixon, that those uh, his parents had a significant influence. But Newman had that too. And I think a lot of it is because he, he was who he was. That is to say, he was in, he was a coach and he was you know, teaching players not only, you know, uh, how to tackle, but also, you know, how to deal with, you know, setbacks, how to deal with what do we do in this situation. And, you know, when you're playing football, a lot of it is, you know, obviously athletic skill, but sometimes it's also you have to make decisions. Uh, do I go right or do I go left? Do we go straight? Uh, we try and do something fancy. And you have to think about the ramifications. Uh, the odds are, you know, that uh, this will not go well. How do you respond to something go well? How do you respond if it goes uh, well or correctly? So these are all kind of things. And, you know, when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, sometimes – when you have to face these issues for the first time, the person who is face, forcing you to face them uh, is the guy or the, in, the gal who really has a big impact on you, even if it's, you know, you learn more in different circumstances from different individuals. So I think that's essentially why Wallace uh, had that impact on Nixon. And of course, there are other people in live, in people's lives that have influence, be it parents, uh, religious leaders, uh, friends, etc. But in this case, it was his football coach. In the last podcast on Nixon and baseball, we talked a little bit about um, Nixon's perspective uh, on baseball, and you know it allowed him to focus and relax, and um, you know sort of think about the statistics of the, of the sport and uh, really, really uh, go deep and analyze it. Was his perspective more or less the same on football? I think with football, it was a little different because the sport is a little different. It's more of um, you get to watch something thrilling and exciting happen. With baseball, there certainly are thrilling and exciting moments, but a lot of it is kind of the anticipation and the build in between the individual pitches and uh, the plays, whereas football is more constant action. And I think for Nixon, uh, as is the case for many people, I think it was just the constant uh, engagement that was more interesting. Now, Nixon being Nixon, he certainly was insightful, he analytical, he paid attention to the sport. He was not just a guy who would, you know, watch the football, you know, the way so many people do on TV. It's like, oh, there's the football. He could notice things like, you know, how are the off, how's the offensive line working? Uh, what's the secondary doing? You know, how are the running backs coordinating between each other? So they're this is a guy who knew the sport more than just being a casual observer. But I think for him, it was a lot more of just entertainment and than was the case for baseball. Indeed, was he a genuine fan? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Nixon being Nixon and being a politician, he found ways to use the sport to his advantage. Uh, and there are a lot of uh, examples of that uh, in his presidency. But this was also him getting to be uh, the sports fan. Uh, he had access to um, television uh, systems that uh, nowadays are probably pretty common that you could find in almost any sports bar or, you know, if you have a satellite dish or streaming video, you have a, you can watch games, you know, you can be in Florida and you can watch a Oregon, Oregon State game, or you can watch a Baylor versus SMU. Uh, but you know, 
back in the day, you know, you were kind of limited to whatever ABC or CBS put on the air. Nixon, you know, could pull those uh, regional feeds in the White House or Camp David. So there was something of this indulging of the fan. There's also something of a little bit of a Walter Mitty fantasy. This is a guy who could call football coaches and talk to them and often, you know, Sometimes his conversations uh, were not particularly that insightful, but you know he just enjoyed. Hey, I'm I'm getting to talk to George Allen, or I'm getting to talk to Woody Hayes. This is cool, you know. So, um, or he could you know visit the players um, at practice sessions. So, in a lot of ways, he was just he was getting to be the fan that uh, few other fans get to be, you know, or the fan that you know you have to pay you know five thousand dollars to go to fantasy baseball camp and hang out with the you know sixty nine cubs and stuff like this. He didn't have to do that because he was president of the United States, and that kind of let him do things. But on the other hand, he was a smart guy, and he got himself on the national ticket of his party four um, five times, and uh, that wasn't an accident either. And he knew how to kind of resonate with the American public, and he took something that he genuinely cared about and kind of made himself look like – an average American, which in some ways he was, and in some ways, you know, there are 300 million of us. Uh, what's average? I mean, uh, and then not many of us, you know, live in the White House and you know have Air Force One, so that ain't average at all. But this is some of this was political theater, but some of this, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it was also very genuine. Before he was president, did he have a lot of experience going to football games as a young? politician, both in Congress and the Senate and uh, as vice president? Yes, he did. Uh, He was a Redskins fan and he would attend games. In fact, uh, there was a a player who a lot of people have forgotten about, even Redskins fans, a guy by the name of uh, uh, Gino Britt. Um, And uh, he would he was an MVP of the league in uh, the late 50s, early uh, late 50s mid fifties and um, Nixon went to his uh, retirement game, the last game of his career. Uh, he would go to the Rose bowl and he'd make a very um, public uh, display of being on one side of the Rose bowl uh, during the first half and then going to the second half. There's a great line uh, from um, um, uh, Earl Warren, uh, Nick, uh, political rival of Nixon, who of course was governor of California during the time that Nixon was a Senator and, he basically said, we're in a lot of trouble. This guy can't even pick what uh, stand, uh, seat he wants to sit in in a football stadium. So um, he he definitely went to football games uh, early in his political career, uh, early in his life. Uh, and he generally was um, a fan of the college game and the pro game. And you have to remember that the pro game really didn't become super popular with the American people until after uh, 1960. So uh, to go to a football game in the 50s was um, not as common as it might be today. As we talked in the previous podcast, um, when Nixon becomes president in 1969, this was a historic year for sports in Washington, especially baseball. Um, Mm -hmm. Nixon's inaugurated. The Washington Senators name uh, uh, baseball legend Ted Williams as their manager. But this is also a historic year for the Redskins, the Washington Redskins leadership. Um, They hire as their head coach. Uh, Vince Lombardi, the green, the green, the great mm-hmm. Green Bay Packers, uh, previous Green Bay Packers coach. How did that come about? How did it come about that Vince Lombardi would become coach of the Redskins in 1969? 
Lombardi was a New Yorker, and he really wanted to be the head coach of the Giants. Uh, actually, to be more accurate, he wanted to be head coach of uh, uh, West Point. He had been an assistant coach there, and uh, people forget this now, but West Point had been a major college football power in the 40s and 50s. Uh, college sport, college football has changed a lot since then, uh, but at the time, uh, the service academies were one of the few, were one of the very few schools that could recruit on a national basis and had a national following. So he wanted that job. He was also, as I just mentioned, a native New Yorker when he was clear he wasn't going to uh, be able to move up because the head coach wasn't leaving. He basically said, okay, I'll be, uh, I'll go to the pro game. And he wanted to stay in the New York area. West Point, of course, is only about an hour from New York city. He went back down to the city and worked for uh, the giants and he wanted to be a head coach. And uh, the opportunity was in Green Bay, and that's he goes there and has an enormous amount of success. Uh, and we all talk about Lombardi's Packers. We tend to forget that he did go to the uh, Redskins, and he left Green Bay uh, for two reasons. He um, didn't particularly uh, – this might be too strong, but he wanted to be on the East Coast. Uh, he was not a Midwestern guy. Uh, so um, – that was part of it. And then the second part of it was he wanted more uh, influence and more responsibility. He wanted a promotion. And the Redskins uh, basically wanted him to be coach, and they also made him general manager. So he was really running the team. And we, we, we tend to think of you know Lombardi and the Packers, but his last season as a head football coach was as the head football coach of the Washington Redskins. And it was just very odd timing. Essentially, Nixon is inaugurated, and then the senators announced that um, uh, Ted Williams is coming, and then the uh, Redskins hire uh, Lombardi all within about a week of each other. So um, it's all very interesting, and there's a great line from uh, the sports columnist uh, for the Washington uh, Post. It's like this is the biggest transfer of power since January 20th, which was the um, day of Nixon's inauguration. So it, it's this very interesting moment, and both the Redskins and the Senators have been perennial losers prior to this point in time, and both Williams and Lombardi have very clear, big, and instant impact on their teams. Both teams have winning records and start bringing in the crowds in 1969. Uh, and um, so it's a really interesting moment uh, in Washington sports history. Um, on September 3rd, 1970, uh, Vince Lombardi uh, passes away only a year after uh, he is named the Redskins head coach. Um, Nixon actually pays homage to him while at the Hotel del Coronado for a state dinner for Mexican President Gust uh, Gustavo Ordaz. Um, could you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about their uh, the Nixon Lombardi relationship during during Lombardi's time in Washington? Um, Lombardi wanted him to come to football games, and uh, he said if he's a fan, he needs to be here. Um, they kind of thought a lot alike on some things. Uh, on other things, they weren't. Um, Nixon briefly considers making Lombardi his uh, vice presidential nominee. It's interesting outside the box thinking, of course, Lombardi had never had um, much job responsibility in the sense uh, he'd not been in charge of any organization more than about 50, 60 people. So, and also his politics were wrong, although they kind of both had similar attitudes about football. 
and the power of will and focus and determination and all this sort of good stuff. And um, Lombardi was much more of a Democrat. He was a, um, in fact, he was a Democrat. He was uh, much more liberal in his uh, uh, thinking about the relationship of uh, the state and society. Uh, and his voting was much more left to center than what would have made Nixon comfortable. But, um, you know, Nixon appreciated uh, the pursuit of excellence that uh, Lombardi um, engaged in. He believed uh, that along similar lines of, you know, you get up, you, you knock the dust off yourself, you try to learn from the experience. Uh, you don't, you know, cry and moan and groan and stuff like this. And I'm exaggerating a little bit here. But these are the kind of uh, attitudes that uh, Lombardi had where, you know, you learn from experiences and you don't wallow in your misery. You try to get better. And that certainly was something that spoke to Nixon in a way that a uh, few other things did. So he really considered him, did he consider Lombardi seriously for the vice presidential spot? Seriously, that's a good question. Um, it was for a moment or two, yes. Um, if you go back to the 68 um, presidential election, Nixon, you know, he ultimately picks um, um, Spiro Agnew, but um, that was didn't seem like a very obvious choice at the time. Uh, obvious choice would have been Nelson Rockefeller or um, uh, Romney. And um, um, that's uh, Mitt Romney's father, um, but George Romney, uh, who was governor of Michigan, but uh, he, Nixon wasn't particularly fond of either individual, didn't really want to bring them into his administration. So he, he looked for – he was thinking of other people, um, and he thought of a couple a couple people. How long, how serious did he actually have people go vet Lombardi? I, I don't think that's the case, but he did spend some time talking about it. He looked at a couple other people before he really kind of started locking on in on Agnew. So – seriously is uh, open to question, but it was something he thought about. And, you know, um, let's give him credit for thinking outside the box. But, um, you know, I think there were reasons why Lombardi uh, did not get very far in that process. Uh, he had never ha held any kind of government position. Uh, and, of course, you know, their politics were not really that compatible in the in the long run. Did Nixon go to any Redskins games in 1969? Um, he goes to, I believe he goes to a game in 69. Uh, he, I do know he goes to a Vikings, uh, excuse me, not a Vikings. He goes to a, a Miami Dolphins, Oakland Raiders game, uh, which makes him the first and only president to attend a game of the American Football League. Uh, this is just before the American Football League and the National Football League merge. Uh, I believe he went to a regular season uh, Redskins game in 69. So, but I cannot remember who they I want to say it was Dallas, but I'm pretty sure that's wrong. It's been said that he preferred watching games on television. Uh, do you, do you take a lot of stock in that? Yeah, I um, mainly because I prefer watching uh, games on TV. Um, you have um, you have um, color commentators offering you know uh, analysis. You can see instant replays and so forth. So. Um, uh, there's there's a lot to be said for watching in television. I mean, the sport comes across well on TV, particularly with the the colors of the uniforms, the logos on the helmets, etc. So, do you um, reports reports say that uh, Nixon hated the blackout rules? Um, you couldn't watch 
um, you know, certain games uh, on, you know, on television in your own market. Uh, could you describe, mm-hmm. could you touch on this a little bit? The rule in place when Nixon was in office um, that the NFL had was uh, home games would not be televised. Uh, the turns, long story made short, television has been fantastic for the NFL. It's one of the reasons why it's so popular. But they also didn't, the powers that be in the league did not want to um, be playing to empty stands um, and have everyone at home because of uh, how ticket sales were shared and stuff like this. So they basically said, uh, you know, if you want to watch a Washington Redskins game, you can watch them on the road. If you want to watch them in, in Washington, you need to buy a ticket. Okay. Um, the NFL is a monopoly. This um, They act like a monopoly. This was designed basically to maximize their sales. Um, and uh, Nixon really did not like this. Uh, he really wanted to go after um, the Redskins, even though they were his favorite team. Um, uh, they were owned by Bennett Williams, um, and um, he uh, was a big supporter of the Democratic Party, and he really wanted to stick it to him. So this was a way to kind of get at him, and he basically was trying to force them to um, – changed their blackout rule, which eventually they did. Congress got involved, uh, and people said, well, wait a minute, the NFL is a private corporation. They have a product to sell. Why is the government getting involved in this? And Nixon basically said, listen, the uh, television airways are public. Um, you know, you you have a monopoly on this. Uh, you have contracts with um, all three networks. You can't get away with this. I mean, there are some legitimate legal grounds to challenge the NFL on this. And uh, Pete Rozelle was not an idiot. Once he saw that this thing had uh, legs, it was getting a lot of support in Congress. The NFL changed its policy now to where um, – or to they changed the policy to something that basically was in effect throughout the 70s and 80s, which is uh, home games would be televised if they sold out 72 hours in advance. So um, he did put some pressure, and he had real impact on um, the sport, at least in that regard. Would you say that Nixon uh, was as much a uh, college football fan as he was a uh, fan of professional football? I yeah, I think it's probably 50-50 when it comes to football. He he loved both games a lot. Um I think like a lot of people he tended to focus on the traditional powers in college football, so Ohio State, USC, uh that kind of, sort of those sort of schools. I don't think he particularly cared about, you know, the the success of Rice or Iowa State, but um uh and of course he loved uh, the pro game. On, uh, he didn't really make a difference between the AFL and the NFL. On December 6, 1969, he, Nixon flies down to Fayetteville, Arkansas, to, to see the historic matchup between uh, the University of Arkansas Razorbacks and the University of Texas Longhorns. Uh, can you describe mm-hmm. the, this, this matchup, the context of this, of this great football matchup, and why did Nixon decide to go down south? Well, that's a long story, and I'm a little biased since I'm a Texas Longhorn, did my undergraduate year uh, work at UT. But here's uh, essentially, um, he had a staffer who was read a story in the New York Times that said, you know, uh, football has, you know, college football is very popular in the South. And he had this idea, and he kind of forwarded it up the chain of command to Haldeman and others. He said, listen, this will make great political theater. Let's look for a game that we can send the president to, preferably a game between schools from two different states, be it you know Mississippi and Alabama or Tennessee and Florida. And 
as it happened, Texas and Arkansas were undefeated in 1969. Um, what people probably don't remember is that in the 60s, uh, Texas and Arkansas were two of the most dominant powers in college football. Um, they were in the same conference, and one year, 63, the uh, Longhorns won the national title, and the next year, uh, the Razorbacks won it, and then the games that they played between each other often determined uh, who you know, at least knocked one of the teams out of contention. So in 1969, these two dominant powers in the same conference are uh, undefeated. And then throw on top of this that 1969 is the centennial year of college football. Uh, in 1869, Rutgers and Princeton played the first college football game. So here it is, um, this game that's just, it's a perfect storm. They're southern uh, schools. They're from two different states. Uh, they are ranked one and two. Both are undefeated. This is for uh, the title of the Southwest Conference. It's also uh, the teams are going to basically, whoever wins is going to be number one. And at that time, the um, wire service polls, uh, Associated Press and University United, UPI, United Press International, um, they basically stopped at the end of the regular season. So th th those were the two dominant media outlets as far as determining who won the mythical national title. There were several other media outlets uh, that awarded a national title. Uh, it was There was no kind of semi-playoff system the way we have uh, today. Uh, and we don't really have a playoff system today, but that's a different story. But uh, this was a perfect storm, and Nixon loved it. And he said, okay, we're going to go. And then Nixon kind of did more. He said, I'm going to give a plaque to whoever wins um, the game and declare them national champs. Um, or actually, I think he was kind of careful in, in what he said. We're going to declare them number one team in the centennial year. Okay, well, this is fantastic. The thing is, is uh, for most of the year, there have been about five or six undefeated teams um, in college football, and a couple of them lost at the very end. Ohio State lost, USC lost. So uh, when that week rolls around, that week of December 6th, um, there are three undefeated teams, Texas, Arkansas, and Penn State. Penn State in the 60s was not the Penn State of today. It was an independent school. It did not have a really long or big record in college football. It was kind of a, eh, every, every 10 years they go, you know, they win eight games and everyone was happy. Uh, under Joe Paterno, who was, uh, I think, only in like his fourth or fifth year as head coach at this point, uh, they had suddenly really kind of turned it on and they had gone undefeated. And it was the second year in a row they'd gone undefeated. And Paterno was like, who do I have to, what do I have to do? Who do I have to kill to, you know, get us ranked number one? And they hadn't been ranked number one at all during this time. So Penn State starts creating a stink about this and saying, hey, you know, what about us? And this kind of creates a little bit of an embarrassing situation, not a huge embarrassing situation, because most people are like, oh, no, Texas and Arkansas are better. They're not an East Coast school. You know, they play really good, you know, football, you know, whatever that is, or, you know, they're, they're more of a power and um, so Nixon goes down to Arkansas and he watches this game, which, you know, turns out to be fantastic, mainly because the the, the better school wins, um, um, hook him. And, um, <laughs> and then um, he um, he's a good politician. He goes into both locker rooms. He, you know, everyone's cheering him there in the Texas locker room. But he, he's a smart guy. He goes into the Arkansas locker room, talks to them. He says, you guys put on a 
uh, great game, and they did. I mean, there was if you watch the game, uh, Arkansas dominates for three quarters of play. Uh, the problem is, is um, there are four quarters in the game. Uh, Texas, you know, really is only really good for about five or six plays during that uh, fourth quarter. Uh, but they win. They have more points at the end. So, uh, you know, it's a great game. It's entertaining, and I can say that because, um, you know, I'm a Texas Longhorn. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, Penn State is still sitting here going, what about us? And this does create a bit of a stink, and, and ultimately it's like, eh, sorry, Penn State. And uh, he kind of, as the politicians go, he kind of says, well, it was just a plaque uh, to say he's number one. Uh, who won this game, and it's not, I'm not declaring national champs. And it's like, oh, yeah. So it's one of those things. And the interesting thing about all this is it's a byproduct of the system that's in place at the time and the system really that's in place even today where college football is really the only college sport that's administered by the NCAA that does not have a formal playoff system. Uh, and, in fact, the lower divisions of football that the NCAA administers uh, have um, have playoff systems, so uh, it's kind of this byproduct, and he takes advantage of it, but it also backfires just a little bit in, in his face. So, what's interesting about this game too is that Bud Wilkinson uh, is one of the announcers. Uh, he actually forges a pretty close friendship with Nixon, even serves as one of his advisors uh, at the White House. Could you describe the relationship Nixon's relationship with Bud Wilkinson? Uh, Wilkinson uh, comes to the White House and he's um, he's working as a staff member. It seems a very odd kind of switch from being a head football coach, college football coach, guy who wins a couple national titles, uh, and then he basically goes and works at uh, the White House. Um, you know, uh, his son actually runs for Congress, doesn't, and his son is actually on the White House staff too. Uh, Wilkinson is uh, still doing pl- as many retired coaches do. Uh, he does play-by-play and some color commentary uh, for the networks after his retirement. So he's doing this on the side, and he gets um, stuck isn't the right word, but because he is comes from this athletic background, he um, gets uh, a lot of uh, these assignments. He didn't really have much to do with this game, although people think he did, and there was a lot of gossip at the time that Wilkinson was making sure that Nixon would attend the game uh, because ABC wanted the president there to increase the ratings and stuff like this. But Wilkinson was, um, you know, he did a, he did a, you know, he had a lot of different taskings uh, at the White House. He was not particularly fond of Haldeman and Ehrlichman and. If memory serves me, there's actually a point, uh, not at the Texas-Arkansas game, but um, another year or two later when he's on the air and he makes some comment about, you know, Haldeman Ehrlichman will be, you know, be the ruin of President Nixon. He, you know, I think this is actually uh, much later on now that I think about it. It's, um, you know, when it's clear that Watergate is starting to be a real, a real scandal. And um, anyway, so he was not a super fan of, you know, some of his bosses at the White House. So... But I think, you know, this was um, reflects, reflected Nixon's interest in um, sport. It kind of certainly gave um, Wilkinson some access to get involved at a higher level. And, of course, you know, when you're a college football coach, you're doing a lot of um, networking. You're talking to alumni, boosters, et cetera. So, sure, he had a good Republican network. So it wasn't completely out of the blue uh, for him to go and do this. 
Uh, a few weeks ago, we had Casey Pipes here, who's author of the uh, book about Richard Nixon's post-presidential years after the fall. Uh, and he mm-hmm. talks about Nixon's relationship with Woody Hayes a bit. Uh, Nixon actually uh, gave the eulogy uh, at Hayes' mm-hmm. uh, funeral. Uh, and he talks about how basically, sort of like Coach Newman, how Hayes just kept going even after winning a third national championship in 1969. He even quotes him saying, or he even... He even uh, in his eulogy, he says that uh, that Hayes wanted to go on and do more. He knew there were risks. After all, there's a rule of life. If you take no risks, you will suffer no defeats. But if you take no risks, you will win no victories. That's sort of an adage that uh, Nixon carried uh, throughout his political career, mm-hmm. even even in his post-presidency till his passing in 1994. But could you talk, talk to us a little bit about Nixon's relationship with the Ohio State uh, great uh, Woody Hayes and his effect on him? Yeah, they had a. Re- I think they had a mutual admiration society uh, going on between the two of them. It's something you kind of see with Nixon and uh, Jackie Robinson, the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers baseball great. Um, they both respected what the other guy was doing. Um, Nixon liked to go to Ohio State games, and uh, Hayes even jokes in '69 uh, that, um, or in '68, I think. Um, that Nixon is um, their good luck charm. Every time he comes and watches a game, they win a national title. So, and, and Nixon certainly thought a lot about along the same lines. And you know, the, uh, the comment, the response to uh, Nixon's eulogy about Woody Hayes is he's not talking about Hayes; he's talking about himself. Um, and I think that's only half the story. He was talking about Hayes, but uh, he was also talking about himself. They basically had a similar ph- philosophical outlook on life. Um, Hayes also was really fascinated by uh, international relations and strategic studies. And in fact, there is a um, endowed chair in the political science department at Ohio State named after Woody Hayes for international relations. So, wow. um, you know, Hayes, when they got together, I mean, Nixon wanted to talk, talk football and Hayes wanted to talk about world affairs. <laughs> uh, and it was, um, you know, it was fantastic because both of them were getting to see stuff that uh, they really you know, so what are you going to do with uh, China and all this sort of stuff? Yeah, I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. So uh, how are you going to deal with Purdue? Oh, we're going to throw a lot of, you know, passes. Or actually with Hayes, you wouldn't throw passes at all. But uh, we're going to, you know, grind them down with running backs and all this sort of stuff. Um, so they both kind of had something that the other guy wanted to chat about. Um, um, Nixon is really pr- – uh, he visits Ohio State, uh, the campus, while he's in office. Uh, to talk to the football team, he's really they show up unannounced, uh, and it's uh, he's kind of proud that you know because it wasn't unannounced, he attracted people who wanted to listen to him. And Nixon, in some ways, was really at his best when he was talking to young people, talking about here's what we want to do in the future, and I want to do this, and I want to do that. So um, you know, and you know, college campuses are just they're college campuses, you know. And you have a hundred people on campus who want to create a stink about something, be it, you know, whatever, and there's the president. Well, that's a great opportunity to create a stink, you know, and get media attention. So um and, you know, in sixty nine, seventy there was indeed a lot of stuff to create a stink about, um, particularly with, you know, Vietnam War, um, the Cold War, uh any number of other ish policy issues that were going on at the moment. So um they both really enjoyed uh, talking to each other because they both kind of had a similar outlook in life. Moving on to 1971, this is when President Nixon installs his White House taping system. What do the White House tapes tell us about his relationship with the game of football? 
they really tell us that it was something genuine. I mean, it removes any doubt there. And it's really interesting. In writing this book, I spent about three months listening to the tapes. And although they're almost all online now, they're not easy to listen to uh, because the tapes, because of how they were organized, it's um, uh, sometimes they would would go on and then uh, on and on and it'd just be dead silence for 20 minutes. And then sometimes, you know, people would be in their chairs or they would be, you know, um, presidents have to sign a lot of documents. So apparently one of the things that goes on is even when he's chatting with people, he's signing stuff and you can hear the pen scratching on the wood and stuff like this because it was right next to the uh, to the microphone, but it's interesting to listen to it because it's no question about who is uh, who's the boss, and there's no question about who's the one of the smartest guys uh, you'll ever meet. Uh, you, Nixon didn't become president on accident. Uh, he really had uh, um, some real uh, something going on in between the ears. Uh, but with football, it's also pretty clear that it's a sport that he genuinely loves, and it was one of his few idle chit-chat. So, you know, the president meets all sorts of people. Miss America, the Girl Scout who sold the most cookies, uh, this lady who's working on, you know, literacy, and so on and so forth. Uh, You know, this person and that person. And many of these people reflect the the breadth and depth of American society, you know, be they from Washington State or from South Carolina. And, uh, you know, they're all... uh, for a lot of people, this is a highlight. You know, it's a great moment to talk. You know, visit the White House and all this sort of stuff. But Nixon didn't really know a lot about you know um, some of the issues that they were working on. But he could always talk to them about sports. In in most cases, people at least were you know polite enough not to say, well, I don't know anything about uh, football. But I mean, he would say, Oh, you're from Cincinnati. Uh, well, did you know the, this, that, and the other thing? And she said, Well, yes, yes, I. Uh, I remember there's this one lady who was um, working on, um, I believe it's literacy or feeding the homeless, and he was talking to her about Oscar Robinson, Ro- Robertson, who was a basketball player who went to the University of Cincinnati, and she kind of said, well, he was before my time, you know, he's 10 years older than me, blah, 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 but it uh, just gets to the point that it was his idle ch- chit-chat with visitors, and oftentimes, uh, even with people he worked with closely, he'd sit there and uh, have a meeting with John Connolly, who's Secretary of Treasury, and for 10 minutes they'd talk University of Texas football before they'd actually get to talking about um, you know exchange rates of the dollar versus the yen and the and the uh, Deutsche Mark and stuff like this. So if you wanted to you know talk with Nixon, you either had to talk about work or you had to talk about sports. That, that's interesting. Um, you know, a, a couple months ago, we had uh, an event here at the library with the people who, the White House officials who witnessed President Nixon uh, on the phone with an as- at the astronauts, and they talked about the national experience of the moon landing in mm-hmm. July 1969 and how that inevitably impacted uh, Nixon's communication uh, uh, with the astronauts. Um, the whole national experience impacted the silent uh, majority for him in a very positive in a very positive way. Could you say the same thing about, or, or similar things about uh, the national experience of football? I think so. I mean, one of the reasons I started this project was I was astonished, uh, like a lot of people, at the outpouring of affection for Nixon uh, upon his death. And just given the way he had left office, 
Uh, he's, um, you would think that he would not be super popular. He was always this kind of metaphor for, um, you know, bad things in American politics. Some of that is deserved. A lot of it isn't. But um, what really surprised me was, you know, this is a guy who, you know, just had this outpouring of affection. And my, my question, one of my research questions is why? Why did people love and hate him? I mean, I get the hate is easy, whether or not you agree with it. The love was another was tricky, and one of the reasons, you know, is I think he resonated with Americans in a way that other people did not. And uh, as I said a little earlier, when you're president of the United States, that's not that's a very rare kind of uncommon club. I mean, you know, there are 40 people, 44 people, 45 people who get to who've had that job, and it, you know. That that's a pretty select club, um, you know. Not many of us, you know, can go whisk off to Camp David and all this sort of stuff. But Nixon, in many ways, was you know, um, you know, middle class American, middle 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 class American, not upper middle class, not lower middle class, just middle class American. And he was able to communicate um, uh, that he was essentially one of us to steal a title from someone else's book. Uh, and I think, you know, this was a guy that people could understand. Um, he was not, you know, uh, he certainly had his social limits, but he could really speak to the American public in a way that they could understand. Um, and I think a lot of this had to do with, you know, just sports and the American love of sports. Uh, I think most Americans enjoy sports. It might not be baseball. It might not be football, but uh, they enjoy uh, physical activity. Even if they're not you know, in great shape, they love watching it. Uh, and this was something that people understood. And I think that was a real powerful asset that Nixon had, uh, that people could understand him. And they might not agree with him, but they understood him. And I think that is something that was an enormous advantage. And I think that was one of the reasons why people, even people who were opposed to him, uh, in the end, um, appreciated him. In 1971, uh, another football relationship really blossomed. Uh, George Allen, who had been coach at Nixon's alma mater, at Whittier College and at uh, and the professional team in Nixon's home area uh, at, the, at the Los Angeles mm-hmm. Rams had come to Washington to be the team's uh, head coach. Uh, can you describe um, George Allen, uh, his his uh, his coming to Washington, uh, and the effect on the team and his relationship with Richard Nixon? Yeah, uh, there, it was again a, a mutual admiration society. Um, Allen was a very successful coach. Uh, he never had a losing season ever uh, in his entire career. Uh, he had come out of uh, uh, Whittier. Uh, and, in fact, it's kind of interesting. Um, just before Nixon leaves office, another Whittier head coach, Don Coriel, becomes the head coach of what were then the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, the St. Louis had two professional teams that were called Cardinals, one in baseball, one in football. These are now the um, Arizona uh, Cardinals. They moved there in the 80s, but um, uh, Coriel coached there, and then he coached the uh, San Diego Chargers uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. So Nixon was just super proud of Allen for uh, being the uh, alumnus of Whittier College or representing the Whittier tradition. Um, again, a similar uh, attitude about life, about you know the excitement of football. George Allen 
had enormous impact almost immediately on the Redskins. Um, in fact, I should just take almost out of it. He had an immediate impact on the Redskins. Uh, they returned to the uh, when Lombardi was there. He uh, got them to a winning season for the first time in something like 20 or 30 years. Uh, he gets sick with cancer and then dies. There's an interim head coach for a year. Uh, the Red, the Redskins return to a losing season, and Allen comes in. He's basically um, fired, I believe, by the Rams, and he's snatched up by the Redskins, and he comes in, and he just starts making wholesale changes. He he did not believe in um, basically drafting players and developing them. He went out and grabbed uh, veterans. He trades around for a lot of guys, particularly a lot of guys he coached with the Rams. And the Redskins suddenly start winning again. And Washington, D.C. is a town that's it's a wonderful place uh, to be, but it is different in the sense that no one is from Washington. Uh, everyone is from somewhere else. They're they're from Michigan or they're from Tennessee or they're from Arkansas or New York. And they come to do politics. And a lot of people might leave after five, ten years. Uh, some people might stay, but uh, it's a town of transients, uh, people uh, who are there temporarily to be with the current administration or to work for a senator or a congressman or, or do something. And they don't. there are not a whole lot of ties that bind, if you will. And the success of the sports teams in the area are one of those ties. Um, that certainly was, um, particularly with the Redskins, they've had win they've had sellouts for decades, even though they were not particularly successful during that, that time. And with the Redskins winning again, uh, this was fantastic. People wanted to go to the games. The Senators were not, after 1969, they were not doing particularly well. And um, the Redskins were winning. And it was uh, particularly, since it's uh, football, there are only eight home games back then, seven home games. So it was a special, special thing. Uh, Nixon wanted to talk football, and George Allen said, loved the fact that he could talk to um, you know, the President of the United States, and it turned out they liked each other. Uh, they had similar attitudes. They came from similar uh, backgrounds, kind of uh, you know, middle-class backgrounds. They had even apparently a similar taste in food, which is to say rather simple food. They didn't particularly uh, care for complex, you know, ornate uh, stuff. So uh, they really enjoyed talking and listening to a lot of the conversations. Uh, they It wasn't like um, Nixon and Hayes. They just talked football. That's all they talked about. They, uh, and it, for Nixon, I think it was a real release mechanism. He didn't have to worry about conversation leaking. He didn't have to worry about, uh, you know, the foreign policy ramifications. It was just some place for him to go to get away from the job for 20 minutes, and he could talk. And it was really interesting listening conversations. Um, Alan would, particularly the uh, 71 NFC or 71 NFC um, National Football Conference Championship, where uh, the Redskins beat the Cowboys to go into the Super Bowl. Um, I guess the, the game was in seven. It was actually in '72, I believe. Anyway, long story made short. Uh, Nick Allen was basically kind of given an insider's perspective, and he said the Cowboys just quit in the fourth quarter. They knew they'd been beat. It was, you know, he talked about the power of the stadium and the fans cheering and stuff like this. So it was really interesting, even you know, for me as a football fan, you know, 40, 50 years later, to listen to an NFL head coach uh, talk about 
how he ran his team. And, and I'm sure for Nixon it was even better because he was talking about stuff that was contemporary. contemporary. And Alan, Nixon and Allen actually, um, Nixon, Allen invited Nixon to practices and even invited him to, to call plays uh, during games. Is that correct? Um, yes and no. Um, Nixon goes to, basically he extends an open invitation, come to, uh, you're welcome to come anytime. And um, the Redskins had a bad game against the Dallas Cowboys where they got pounded and they lost and they were booed in the stands. And Nixon said, okay, this is the time I go because uh, the team's feeling low and I can give them a little perk up and tell them. And so he goes and he basically says some of the stuff that I just said, you know, you've been good for the city, you're, you're a bond and all this sort of stuff. The fans are with you. I'm sorry you got booed, but don't worry about it. Sometimes you got beat, but you didn't give up. You were get, playing there. I could see it, blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, it doesn't matter what your politics are. You know, you're 23, 24, 25 years old. You're a professional football player. And guess who's walking across the stadium, uh, the, the practice field? The president of the United States. You know, it doesn't matter if it's Richard Nixon or Ronald Reagan or uh, Barack Obama or Donald Trump. You know, it's like, hey, how many times does a president show up to your office? Um, uh, so that – it's just in and of itself a charge, you know, and uh, I mean, I don't think even the governor showing up in the case of uh, the uh, even for a team that's in a state with the governor. Of course, the Redskins are in the District of Columbia. I don't think that would have that impact. But here's the president. That has to be a really neat thing. So uh, that was something that Nixon did. And of course, the Redskins go on and win the next couple of games. They make it to the playoffs. And Nixon was very proud of that. Uh, and that he kept talking about that for weeks after it happened. Now, the story that gets out about Nixon designing a play is something that Allen actually does. And he basically tells Nixon in one of the phone conversations, I'm going to use this play and I'm going to tell them it's your play. And Nixon's, uh, Nixon's response is, oh, boy. Um, he doesn't say, don't do that, George, or, you know, George, use this, um, or have the tight end, you know, do a double end fake or something like this. He just says, oh, boy. So they do the, the play, and it, um, he, Allen tells the team, this, Nixon designed this play, and it's designed to basically inspire them. Well, it turns out the play doesn't work. They lose the um, the game. It's the first playoff game, and um, that's the end of that. And then one of the players um, is uh, providing a commentary for a, a retelecast of the game, and says Nixon designed that play. You know, it's, and uh, suddenly it becomes this thing where Nixon designed plays, and it was uh, the story became better than uh, the reality in that sense in that um, everyone says Nixon's crazy. He's designing football plays and stuff like this. No, it was a George Allen design play, but he just put Nixon's name on it. And Nixon was like, okay, if this, you think this will help go forward and do it. So it's a great story. Unfortunately, it's just a story. <laughs> how did the, uh, how the Redskins fare that season in 71? Uh, they have a winning record, they make it to the playoffs, and they lose in the first round. And then the following season, they they go to the Super Bowl, and they play against the Miami Dolphins, the undefeated Miami Dolphins, who go on to win uh, with their mm-hmm. coach, uh, Don Shula. Um, did Nixon follow that season pretty closely, and how did, did he have any anticipation about the Super Bowl in 72? 
Yeah, Nixon, um, he, he's loving life. Um, he was a Dolphins fan. Uh, he had a, um, he had a, his um, weekend getaway home uh, in Florida, and he liked the Dolphins, uh, so he was cheering for them. Uh, he cheered for them in the previous Super Bowl when they lost to Dallas Cowboys. And then uh, that year they go undefeated. Uh, it's the, at that point in time, only the third time in NFL history that a team has gone undefeated during the regular season. Um, and then they get to the Super Bowl. Uh, Nixon is kind of in this quandary. Both of his teams are there. And uh, he says, well, I'm a Washington guy. This is where I live most of the time. Uh, I'm going to root for the Redskins. Um, and he basically invites George Allen to the um, White House. You know, George Allen gives his team a day off. It's apparently the first day off since the start of the season. Um, you know, and he gives him a football, says, you know, go. Uh, the interesting thing is a couple weeks before, Billy Kilmer, who was one of the quarterbacks for the team, um, gave an interview with the Washington Post. And in the story, it's very clear, um, the reporter actually talks about it, that Kilmer had been drinking. And so uh, he's giving an interview. It's a long feature story in the Post. And Kilmer basically says, this Nixon guy is crazy. He's getting in our way. Um, I got to talk to George Allen. He's really hurting us. And everyone, you know, gives Kilmer a hard time. It's like, you guys are going to the playoffs for the second time in 40 years. I mean, good Lord, you know, what is Nixon doing that's hurting you? So um, anyway, Nixon talks to Allen about this and says, what's going on? And he said, Kilmer has a little problem with the bottle. He got a little too drunk and uh, don't worry about it. We love you. So when he has uh, Allen over at the White House, he gives uh, a letter for to Kilmer and basically says, you know, um, go beat the Dolphins. And he even writes a letter to Kilmer's daughter who's fighting cerebral palsy. So um, anyway, it's, um, it's, you know, he basically says, I'm with you guys through thick and thin. And, uh, um, you know, he's basically, he roots for the Redskins. Uh, they don't win. In fact, the Dolphins win. And um, uh, they put together the first and only undefeated season in NFL history. Um, the other two teams that had, uh, the Chicago Bears had gone undefeated in the 1940s. They both lose in the playoffs, as is the case with the 2008 uh, New England Patriots. So um, people get, uh, people from Florida give Nixon a hard time. Nixon says, "Well, you know, you guys did a great thing. Um, I love the Redskins. I, I love I love the Dolphins too. Congratulations. You know, it's basically the only thing you can do in this situation." Did he have the Dolphins at the White House or um, speak with Coach Shula? He spoke with Shula. The, he invents the practice of inviting people to the uh, White House after they win the big game. He hadn't invented that practice at that point, so he doesn't invite them to the um, Oval to the White House at that time. At the beginning of the podcast, we talked about um, the uh, we we played the the speech that Nixon gave in July of 1971 in Canton, Ohio. Um, at the gold jacket ceremony uh, at the Hall of Fame. Could you tell us why Nixon was there and uh, the full extent and context of that speech? Um, Nixon was in Ohio for um, domestic politics. Uh, he um, was trying to basically uh, get control over um, 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 
um, Ohio Republican politics, and he made a series of trips there. Um, and um, it was also, you know, part of this opportunity to kind of uh, associate himself with the sport. It's uh, political theater. Uh, he had to have an excuse to go to Ohio. And um, it was also an opportunity. He would give the speech, but then he would also be uh, interviewed by ABC Sports. Um, Frank Gifford is the one who interviews him. Um, this is an opportunity for him to get a lot of basically free national publicity without um, doing anything political. Because when you take a stand on a policy issue, um, you're going to make people happy, but people who disagree with you are going to be unhappy about this. Hey, I'm going to give a feature interview with George, Frank Gifford, who is not a uh, hard news journalist. He's a sport, you know, he's a former athlete who's become a sports broadcaster. He's going to ask him questions about what, how, you know, uh, I don't want to say soft, but generally questions that are going to work to Nixon's advantage. So it was a win-win, win-win for Nixon. Our guest today is Nicholas Evan Sarantakis, professor of history at Naval War College and author of Fan in Chief, Richard Nixon in American Sports, 1969 and 1974, coming out soon in October. Our topic is Richard Nixon and his love for America's passion, football. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was fun. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroidis and your Belinda. 